So I just want to say first off, happy Father's Day to all the fathers. Um, people are, yeah, that's right. People are coming up to me and saying happy Father's Day. Um, but, you know, I have to kindly decline because I think that a mother, like a pre-mother, you could say happy Mother's Day to her because she's going through the work, right? Like she's dealing with the, all the stuff. And for me, my life literally hasn't changed one bit. And so next year will be my first happy Father's Day. This time, I do have a child, but I, I, it's, if so, she's the easiest child in the whole world, right? Um, so, sorry? Yeah, that's right. Single mothers are fathers too. Amen. So, uh, that's right. Hey, out to the single moms out there. Being the mom and the dad. That's right. Amen. Hallelujah. Fathers can look like many different things, right? You don't necessarily just need to have a man in your life. It can look like a coach. It can look like a pastor. It can look like a father, a stepfather, a mother, right? So let's give it up for all the coaches and pastors and single moms out there. And if you're a human, that's right. If you're a human being, why don't you stand up? It's Father's Day, right? <laughs> but you know, isn't that so good? Because if we can allow God to be our father, it doesn't have to just be a biological person, right? If I can allow a spirit man who's in heaven to be my father, really, God will use anybody and anything in order to get his message across to me. And so that's why we can rejoice on Father's Day, whether you had a father, a mother, a coach, a, a friend, whatever it was, because God is, is amazing and how he can get his message through to us through any means, through any channel that's necessary. He's, not, he's never limited to just one source, but he can make sure that we get exactly what we need. Amen? So this morning, um, I, wanna, I, I don't want to keep us long this morning, because uh, we're taking my dad on our boat for Father's Day. And I've been working on my tan, but it's not there yet, so I need to get out there early. How many of you say amen to that? Right? You can say amen. It's okay. Right? We know. It's sunny out there. So I'm going to teach this morning a little bit from 1 Thessalonians, um, and I want to give you a little bit of backstory behind what's happening here so that we understand the context, because sometimes when we read through the letters of Paul, um, it it doesn't really so much accurately describe what's going on in his life, and I think that sometimes in Christianity, we can think that the people who did something for God— had these amazing, perfect lives, right? That they were kind of like on this road to absolute success everywhere that they went. But what's happening in 1 Thessalonians at this point is that Paul, um, he's really in a very, you know, down, kind of depressed state. If you go through the book of Acts, it kind of talks about what Paul is doing at this point. Um, and, and essentially what happened was he, he was writing to the church of Thessalonica in this, you know, in 1 Thessalonians, but he, he wasn't in Thessalonica at this point. In fact, he wrote this from what scholars say was in, in the area called Corinth. Um, and that was kind of where he sort of went because he'd kind of, you know, started at the top, you know, failed at the top, failed in the middle, failed at the bottom, you know, and he was kind of just in a really downtrodden state. He'd been in Thessalonica. Nothing happened. He got kicked out. Then he went down to Athens and he was there and did some stuff and he got kicked out. And now he's in Corinth. And he's kind of in this place of feeling kind of downtrodden. He's kind of feeling like his life isn't working the way he thought it was supposed to. Um, and, and finally, uh, he gets word from uh, some of the people that he's traveling with. And they're kind of saying to Paul, hey, amazing things are happening in the, you know, the church of Thessalonica here. And so in response to that, Paul writes this letter to them essentially so that they're, they have some instruction as far as how do we actually do church, right? How do we do this so that we're not kind of running lawlessly and free? Because if you know about the Greek churches, 
uh, they didn't have church up until Paul came there. They worshipped, you know, like Zeus and all those gods. And so that was kind of the way they did things. And so Christianity was a new thing to them. And so Paul's letters, really, as you read them, are simply just instructionally in a very short period of time or, a, a, you know, a couple of words, a short passage on how do we successfully live and establish ourselves as Christians, okay? And I thought that this passage was particularly uh, enjoyable, and we're actually going to talk right from the very beginning of, of this, which we're going to read, you know, we're going to go from one to seven, but we're going to focus mainly on six and seven. And the way that I was thinking about this is uh, uh, my degree, before I you know, got into ministry, I was a scientist, literally a scientist, okay? And one of the things that you do is you write labs, and at the beginning of a lab, you write what's called an abstract, which is kind of like the Coles notes. So if the people who are reading through, you know, they don't actually get through the whole report, it's kind of like you write the most important stuff at the very beginning, and I really grabbed that concept because you could see that Paul was doing this in 1 Thessalonians, is that it was like he was, you know, thinking, you know, maybe these guys aren't going to read through the whole letter, but let's kind of give them what's really important, and if we could kind of give them one takeaway in order to go and live their lives, this is what they wrote. Uh, because, you know, the Bible isn't complex. It's actually very simple. And so if you wouldn't mind throwing it up on the screen here so that we can all kind of read it together, it says this, this letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We're writing to the church in Thessalonica to you who belong to God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give you grace and peace. We always thank God for all of you and pray for you constantly. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope that you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you, our Father loves us, and he has chosen us to be his own people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way that we lived when we were with you. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering that it brought you. And this way, you imitated us and the Lord. As a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece throughout both Macedonia and Achaia. And that's it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Heavenly Father, this morning as we read through your word, Lord, our desire is that we would be imitators of you. Not just hearers, but doers also. Father, I'm asking right now that as your word goes forth this morning, that it would free us from every chain that would try to keep us bound to limited thinking, to limited ideas, to limited resources, and that we would step into the realm of being chosen, that we are the chosen ones. And we thank you for that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we read uh, in 1 Thessalonians 6 and 7, it, kind of in the abstract of what he goes on to continue to talk about, what I wanted to focus on this morning was this word of what he says is that you are imitators. You're imitators. And I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them the title of my message this morning. Say, neighbor, neighbor. Like, father, like father, like son. Like, 
Now, some of you maybe had like a little bit of negativity roll up in that moment. You're like, I am not like my dad, right? We're going to get there. And so we see this in 1 Thessalonians here where Paul really steps into and he kind of takes charge in the sense of, of being the, the, the father figure or assuming a fatherly role in the lives of the church of Thessalonica. We know many times that Paul uses this analogy or, or, or he infers this idea of that, that you can be confident to imitate me or to be like me. In other passages, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And so we see constantly that as Paul is setting up this church, he's not setting up a church of individuals, but he's setting up a church of family members that he's establishing something very important, and that is that, that as the father in their congregation, that there is a role in their lives, that if they simply would just imitate what Paul is doing, that they would be able to experience or they would be able to step into the blessing that Paul had just because, like a father, I was doing what he was doing. And so this year has been, it's kind of a special year, like I said, is, is I'm getting ready to have a baby, uh, 94 days from now, give or take a few, my daughter will arrive into this world. Yes, and that's a wonderful day. Yes, 94 days. It's very fast. Like you feel like, where did the months go? Um, but we will be ready in Jesus' name. Um, and so getting ready for my first child, um, I'd like to tell you a secret. I literally have no clue what I'm doing, okay? Um, and, but the more that I kind of have walked down this road, I realized that I think this is the secret of parenting, right? I think truthfully, no parents know what they're doing. And really the job of parenting is you have to trick your child as long as possible so they think you know what you're talking about, right? <laughs> and and, and I, I kind of feel this. I think that, you know, it's like getting tasered, right? And you've ever watched the videos of people getting tased before? Like you honestly think that you're ready to get tased until you get tased, right? It's like there's nothing possible to be able to prepare you for what you're about to go through. And I think that that's kind of the way that a lot of parenting, you know, styles really kind of morph out of is you kind of are sort of just stumbling forward. And, you know, and I think that with, with children, it's kind of like you sort of just try your best to make your way forward. You trick your kids for as long as possible and you pray to God that they don't hate you. And then if they do hate you, you simply just have another one and try again, right? I'm going to write a parenting book later on this year so you can buy it in there. And so, 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 so I, I, I realize this in my own life, truthfully, um, and I realize sometimes, and really what I want to talk about this morning is, is, is it's kind of a funny example to use um, but I think that sometimes as children, which is we know in our house, and we know, you, you'd know if you really kind of study any uh, 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 kind of brain pathway things, and you understand where our personalities and our opinions and our belief systems come from, you know, I wish that our belief systems came, you know, at least for myself, when I was about, you know, 30. Because I felt like when I was 30, I could sort of differentiate what was true and what was not true. But the problem is, is that a lot of, or most of, or maybe I could say all of, our belief systems are formed before the age of 12 years old, which I think is so amazing, 
but also so it was kind of like what I said to my dad, you know, I've been trying to been, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a strategist in the sense, so I'm trying to like plan out how to be the best dad possible so that my daughter doesn't need Rama. And I came to him just the other day and I said like, you know what, she's going to need Rama, you know? And so like, I could try to be as good as I could be, but there's no way that I could possibly, because unfortunately what happens is, is that as a seven, eight, nine, ten year old, our ability to process information is so limited. But unfortunately, what happens is, is and, and I know this especially with fathers, is, is that a lot of the way that we view our fathers is now that I'm about to be a father, I realize that chances are my dad, I mean, he, I'm going to be 33 when I'm a dad. My dad was 23, okay? I was basically like, you know, a broomstick with a watermelon on top of it when I was 23. And so I could only imagine, you get that, right? Nothing there, right? You'll get it later. My humor is so advanced, it takes time to really. And so I realized from this concept simply that my dad was not prepared to understand how to raise me. But as a three, four, five, six, or seven-year-old, I was honestly convinced that my dad was the smartest person in the world. And anything that he was doing was clearly intentional. And thus, because it was intentional, it was meant to scar me or damage me forever. Okay? Now... In hindsight, that was slightly immature, but unfortunately, as a five-year-old, I don't have the ability to process that kind of information, and so my truth is kind of like you just slap it out. Whatever makes the most sense must be the truth, and so because of that, uh, we live in this place, and, and I, it was kind of like a, a story of my life. Is, is I played hockey for my whole life pretty well. I think I put on skates like six weeks after I could walk, and I skated really ever since then, and, you know, and that's love. I tell you, children, if there's children in here, the very fact that my parents would put me into hockey, right? I, I mean, do you know what it takes to get me up off the couch at 8 p.m. at night? Like, a lot. Like, sometimes, you know, my pregnant wife will have to get off the couch and do stuff for me because I'm, like, glued there, right? And my parents, night after night after night, were getting up and, you know, going into a freezing cold arena, right? And so, but I couldn't see that because it was, you know, what parents were supposed to do, right? And so I remember I had this thing, and, and I literally think this has come up in Rama before, and it's kind of been a funny story about my life, but one of the things that my dad used to do is I would play a game. Mind you, this is late at night, so the very fact that he would talk to me at 10.30 p.m. was like, whoa, he was super dad, okay? But that wasn't good enough for me, because I was 10, and I had limited ability to comprehend what was actually happening. <laughs> Not now, then. So we would have this thing where uh, it, 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 my dad would, it was, you know, we talked through the game, okay, which is because he wanted me to be good. He wanted me to excel because that's what a good dad does. And so we would talk through the game, and we would talk through all the different things that would happen. And I remember, oh, man, I hated that. Now, I'm told, mind you, this is not my recollection, but I'm told that he praised me continually, Okay. But in my 10-year-old limited ability to comprehend, it was literally a bash session where I was garbage, everything I did was garbage, and I've seen, you know, trash cans play better hockey than you, okay? That was my recollection of what happened. Um, and so I can remember, like, I would go home, right, and I would, like, be so upset. Now, mind you, I was a very emotional child. My parents had to put me into hockey because I was more girl than boy, okay? Okay. <laughs> 
like, I would cry all the time, okay? Like, my dad would pay other players to, like, check me hard just so he could man me up a little, you know? Hit him from behind, you know? Break his arm, you know? Let's make something happen with this boy, right? That didn't happen. At least I hope it didn't happen. In my 10-year-old in my limited ability to comprehend, that's, no, I'm just kidding. So I would go home, and I would be so upset, right? And my mom would be like, Ian, what did you say to him? And, and he'd be like, I don't know. Like, I was telling him, oh, he was thinking, you know, maybe what I said was, you know, when you circle, you should face the puck instead of face away from it, right? <laughs> right? And this is like literally rend my soul, right? I'm dying on the inside because my dad hates me because he told me to circle towards the puck instead of away from it, which was great advice. You actually should do that in hockey, right? But I couldn't hear him, and, and my response, because of my inability to comprehend what was going on, something that he meant as loving, I perceived as hate. And honestly, the more people that I get to talk to, the more I realize this. The more that, you know, maybe you didn't play hockey, maybe you, maybe you didn't have a father figure, but there was somebody in our life growing up where we had this experience, where we misunderstood what their intention was, and because we misunderstood it, we assumed that, that it was negative, it was hateful, it was vengeful. And because of that, what happens in our life so frequently, and I see it in so many people's lives, where we shut ourselves off to father figures. I think that's why I love what Paul says, because the reality is, is that human beings have been human beings since the beginning. And I felt that it was so amazing how Paul, as he's writing to this church, and for all he knows, this could have been his only letter that they would have ever received from him. And the very first thing that he comes to them and he says, this is what you need to do. You need to have a father. You need to find someone who you can imitate and be like them. Because that's the nature of what a father is in our lives. And I think that so often in our culture, is that we've literally created, out of our wounding and out of our independence, we've created a culture of fatherlessness. We've created fathers who didn't know how, or sons who didn't know how to be fathers, who then produced sons who didn't want to have fathers. And we've created this, and we've literally missed out on the amazing intention of God, because God, from the very beginning, was our Father. It was His nature. Constantly throughout Scripture, we read that his relationship to us is not a relationship of Lord. It's not a relationship of ruler. It's not a relationship of king. It's a relationship of father to son. And so as I began to think about this and I began to you know, take a look at our culture, I realized how, how much we could miss out on if we continue to persist under this idea. You know, I was thinking about this, that so often, and I think that in my own life, having an amazing father, you know, if somebody would say to me, oh, you're just like my dad, it would be like, oh, they would just bubble out of me, right? I'm nothing like my dad, right? Literally now, it's like, we are the same person. Like, sometimes people will call me and I can answer and be like, hi, it's Ian, and none of you would know, right? Because I literally sound like my dad, I talk like my dad, I think like my dad. We are the same. But for so long, it was such a negative to me because of, uh, through the years, my negative understanding. And the more that I thought about this, I realized something very, uh, really amazing is that this was the same paradox that Jesus would have gone through. 
Understanding how to get past the woundings of our father so that we could step into a right relationship with our heavenly father. Because you know how, you know, I know that this is true, right? We, we talk about this all the time, you know, that Jesus was, you know, I only do what I see my father do. And I only say what I hear my father say. And it's like he had this immediate, like amazing connection. But I tell you something, I know that Jesus had to overcome some stuff because Jesus had a dad, right? And Joseph, you know, he had less books to read, right? <laughs> than my dad did, or hopefully read. And less than I have to read for sure, and I feel like I still have no idea. And I realized something very amazing is that, you know, if, if it was so important that Joseph would have been a perfect father, Jesus would have came with an instruction manual, yeah. <laughs> right? Can I say that again? Like if it was so detrimental that Jesus was, you know, treated perfectly by his dad and everything in his whole world was just so perfect so that finally when the day came, he would have this perfect relationship with Heavenly Father because it perfectly mirrored his father, Joseph. Jesus would have come with instructions. But I realized something, parenting doesn't come with a manual. I think it should. I think it should be like the first book of parenting. It should be in there because it would make it a lot easier. But it's really not. It's really something that we're forced to rely on our Heavenly Father with. And so as I realized this, I realized something, that, that Jesus you know, had parents, Mary and Joseph, and they probably felt a lot like me. They probably you know, did a lot of things that my dad did, and I'm sure that Jesus had the opportunity and probably did at times think that Joseph hated him, that he was angry, that he was all those things, because we know for sure that there were times where Joseph got pretty stern with Jesus. And, and we realized something that if, 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 if in order to succeed in our destiny, if in order to be able to be free and be the people who God called us to be, if that required us to have perfect parenting, then Jesus would have come under very different conditions. He would have come like transported from heaven as a full-grown man without the need for parents uh, because if there was such an opportunity for our parents to destroy us, then you know Jesus would have. But we realized something very amazing is that, ugh, I'm not going to get there yet, that Jesus was just fine even though he had normal parents. Normal, dysfunctional parents. I heard somebody, it's true, right? Because I heard somebody talk about this. I can't remember who it was, but the reason that Jesus was able to have such compassion on Mary Magdalene, you know, the woman who was caught in adultery, was because chances are those were the people who Mary, his mother, would have hung out with. Mary, his mother, was accused of the very same thing, having a child before she was married. And so we realized something, that Jesus was not born into the most perfect of conditions. He wasn't born into the perfect environment. He wasn't born with perfect parents. But he was still able to be the Savior of the world. Why? Because it's, it's about our Heavenly Father. And the worst thing that we can do in our life is that we can cut off the stream to fathers because of our disappointment when our stream to our heavenly father is the thing that's going to get us to our destiny. And you know, it's like the scripture that says, you know, it's talking in 1 John where it says, you know, if you profess to love your brother, or if you profess to love God, but you hate your brother, right, then what? You can't say that you love God because what you do towards your brother is what you do towards God. Well, it's the same exact example. We could worship and sing, God, you're so good. You know, I love you, Father, and all those lyrics that I don't know because I play the drums, right? <laughs> but we hate our natural father, 
And that's an indication to us of the blocks. We wonder why we're not getting things from God. We wonder why things are happening for us. It's because a lot of the times, through our limited ability to process as a 10-year-old, we cut off the supply to our Heavenly Father. <clears throat> and so too often, what we do is we put, we put things onto our natural fathers that only our Heavenly Father can do. We expect them to be something they could never be. We need them to do for us things that they never could do. And because of that, because they can't be the person we think that they should be, but they were never meant to be the person we think they were supposed to be, now what happens is, is that we get into a place of disappointment, and now because we're in a, dis- a, place, a place of disappointment, God can never be to us who he's supposed to be because I've cut off the supply to my father, which then in turn cuts off the supply to my heavenly father. So I'm hoping that we see from this, and all the jokes of what I'm saying, is that the things that our parents did to us, good or bad. I had a great parent, you know, my, my wife, right? She had a different story. We all come from different places. We've all gone through different things. We've all experienced different stuff. But the reality is simple. Your dad, as good or as bad as he was, could never be for you who God was supposed to be in our lives. And so then the funniest thing happens, right? You know, we get so angry at our dad because of, you know, he tells me to circle towards the puck instead of away from the puck, and I think he hates me. And then the funniest thing happens is, is that we literally become our dads. Don't you hate that, right? You know, you're like, oh, I swear I'll never be this way, right? And then it's like, you know, your wife comes to you and says, wow, you're just like your dad. And I'm like, no, God, no, right? And in that concept, you know, I realized something. I realized that you can't run from what you don't want to be. You have to run towards what you want to be. You see, so often what we do is is that our focus is on the things that we don't want to be. Our focus is on how bad our dad was, how bad our mom was, how angry our coach made us, that one pastor, you know, who did the thing that he did. Um, And so because of that, what we run away from these things because we never want to be them. But the problem is, is that negative attention is still attention, right? And we read in the scripture that where your treasure is, where your attention is, there there you're going to be, right? It's like running on a treadmill trying to get away from something, but essentially just being in the exact place that you've been. And most people, unfortunately, are stuck as that 10-year-old self trying to be something or trying not to be something that they're literally destined to be because they're still standing right back there. Because you can't run away from something. You can't run away from your past. You can't run away from your pain. You can't run away from your depression. You can't run away from your discouragement. You literally have to run towards something. And the problem is, is that when I cut off the supply to my father, I cut off the supply to my heavenly father, and my heavenly father is literally the only person that I can run to in my time of need. Nobody can give me what my heavenly father can give me, but when I shut myself off towards fathers, I literally have nowhere to run, and so I'm destined to just continue to repeat the same process. But I tell you something, it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to go through the pain. You don't have to go through the suffering. You don't have to repeat the same cycle over and over. What we have to do is release the past and run to our Heavenly Father. Because there is an answer, but our answer is our Father. 
And so I see this constantly in people's lives, people who are running away from their past only to continually produce the past in their future. Because you can't get away from something when it's all you're focused on. And listen, I'm not trying to stand here and tell you that what you went through wasn't real. I'm not trying to stand here and try to belittle the issues. I'm not trying to stand here and belittle the disappointment or the discouragement, the pain that you went through. By no means am I trying to do that. What I'm trying to do is offer a solution, and that is that you don't have to stay there any longer. You don't have to be there. You don't have to live angry. You don't have to live frustrated. And so what's the solution? I actually wanted to title my message this morning, Focus on the Fruit. Because we talk about that a lot in Christianity, right? Focus on the fruit. But I realize that sometimes when it comes to, you know, parental relationships, sometimes the fruit is bad. So as I was talking to the Lord about this one day, I was walking, and he said to me, no, no, it's not focus on the fruit, it's focus on the flowers. As a Father's Day message, men, focus on the flowers. (laughs) And I laughed about it because I knew immediately what he was saying was, is that everybody's garden is full of flowers and full of weeds. Because the reality is, is that somebody in here may have not had a father, he may have left, you know, and somebody else may have had a father who was abusive, and I had a dad who told me to turn facing the puck, not away from it, right? But unfortunately, the way that humanity works is that that produces weeds in all of our gardens. And weeds, because, you know, it's like, you know, you say that my back hurts and all that I can do is look, think about how mad my back hurt. And then I would say to you, oh, you're, it can't hurt that bad, right? Even though literally maybe it's broken. And all that I had was like, oh, I worked out a little bit too hard, so it's a little sore, right? And so pain is like that in our life where just because somebody went through something that was intense doesn't mean that it was, they felt it any more intense than I did when my dad told me to circle towards the puck instead of away from the puck. And so the reality is, is that everybody's gardens are full of weeds and they're full of flowers. And the Lord spoke to me, he said, you know what you have to do is focus on the flowers. Because it's easy to focus on the weeds, isn't it? It's easy to focus on what's wrong. It's easy to focus on what you wish was different. It's easy to focus on things that you want to change. But like I said, nothing can change if we stay focused on it. So what do we do? We simply just focus on the flowers and realize something very simple. My life is my garden. You know, it's like I've been looking at different houses lately and I've been going around. um, And for a long time, I was really moved by the way things looked, like the landscaping, you know? And so it'd be like, oh God, I could never live here. Like, look at those hedges. Oh, jeez. And then finally I realized like, oh, wait a minute. When I buy this house, those are going to be my hedges, right? So I could cut them down. I could trim them up. I could make them into a bonsai tree. I could do it, literally whatever I want to do with them because they'll be my, you know, unfortunately in life, sometimes we think that our garden belongs to somebody else. Ooh. How'd that feel, right? That feels good. It's like, ah. I tell you something, your garden is yours. You choose what stays and you choose what goes. You choose what you focus on and what you don't focus on. You choose what you plant and what you don't plant. 
So this morning as, we, as I close, I wanted to say this, that maybe your dad didn't leave you with much of anything good. Maybe he didn't. I think this morning, if there's anything that we could do, is that we would dig it up and replant. I think singing all these songs about love and he loves us and he cares for us and all these things, I think it's time to dig up the pain of the past. It's time to dig up all those painful memories maybe that we didn't, we don't know what to do with, we don't know how to handle and replant. Because I realized something, there is more on the other side of your pain. There is more on the other side of your anger. There's more on the other side of your frustration. Can I tell you, it's not worth being stuck. It's not worth being depressed. It's not worth being worried. Right? I have a heavenly father who has literally given everything to me and for me. He says that he's with me when I'm down and he's with me when I'm up. He tells me to look at the lilies and how beautifully he clothed them. And if he would clothe them so beautifully, what would he not do, right? He says that if I look at the sparrows and when I see the beauty of how he cares for them, how much more does he not care for me? He says that he's with me. He says he'll never leave me. He says that he's for me. What, it doesn't matter to me who my dad was. I have a heavenly father. He says it like this. He leads me. He leads me beside the still waters. You know, maybe your childhood was nothing but murky, was nothing but wavy. Our Heavenly Father will lead us beside the still waters. He says it like this, He restores my soul. Maybe you went through a lot of turmoil. Maybe you went through a lot of abuse. Maybe you were abandoned. Maybe you were left alone. Maybe you were cheated. Maybe you feel broken. He restores my soul. This is our Father. This is our Dad. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that this morning. Your goodness in our life. You said we can cast our cares on you because you care for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.